I must tell you that um, uh, yesterday Lorraine and I attended the funeral of um, John Dingle. I don't know whether any of you know him. Um, I first met John in Cape Town. He was um, with a little group of businessmen who visited the college and uh, this was in the early days of the college. Um, The Lord really blessed us with black students and the proportion of black students in the college was growing every year but we didn't have uh, any black teachers and uh, John Dingle uh, came back to Australia he was based in Sydney at that stage and organised the funding for us to appoint our first black lecturer chap by the name of Siegfried Ngabani Zulu um, who'd been a student at the college. He'd, um, he'd uh, graduated from the college and become pastor to a congregation in Kailicha. That's the kind of Soweto of uh, Cape Town. Um, very dangerous, <laughs> very uh, challenging ministry, but he'd done a fantastic job there. Well, I managed to get him into the college um, to teach. Um, Eventually, he was headhunted to fact of life in South Africa these days. You educate somebody, uh, pretty soon they're going to be headhunted by a big organisation or big business or something like that. So we lost him uh, to SIM, uh, serving in mission as it's called now, it used to be Sudan Interior Mission. So he became the uh, Southern Africa director of uh, SIM, and uh, just recently at the last synod of the Church of England in South Africa, uh, was elected to be the new presiding bishop. So uh, the beginning of February, uh, he will be consecrated as, uh, well, we would say the archbishop, but they say the presiding bishop of the denomination. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's wonderful uh, the way God works. Anyway, that's not my sermon. Uh, that just came to me talking to Graham. I want to talk this morning about time and eternity, uh, it being New Year's Eve and all, and uh, we, we are thinking about the passage of time. Um, Richard Dawkins used to make fun of people who believed in God. One of his books, he tells how an old woman was asked, who holds up the earth? And... Um, and her answer was, turtle, a turtle. And uh, the question then came back, well, who holds up the turtle? And she says, well, another turtle. And uh, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> well, well, um, the truth is, it's God all the way down. And uh, I don't know that I'm kind of getting to that age. Uh, my dad started to lose his memory when he got to my age. And um, one of the nice things that accompanied that was a sort of a... um, He would become transfixed by some tiny little thing, and I'm finding finding that too. See a leaf, see a flower, uh, see a kangaroo hopping into the bush, just in awe and wonder. Uh, and how marvellous it is. And you take it for granted for most of your life, these things. Um, but suddenly 
you don't take them for granted anymore. You just see, you see the hand of God um, everywhere. So it's God all the way down. I joined a reading group shortly after we returned from Africa. Um, atheists and Christians who met up when Lawrence Krauss, the well-known atheistic cosmologist, visited Perth and was uh, um, speaking against Christianity. Um, this group met up. Uh, and met monthly to read each other's books. It was great fun. Uh, one occasion I remember somebody uh, saying, well, it all goes back to gravity. Everything sort of can be explained, um, develops from gravity. And uh, then somebody else said, uh, well, what's gravity? And nobody could answer that question. I mean, we say Isaac Newton discovered gravity, but actually he was the first person who tripped over a tree root and bumped his head on the ground who discovered gravity and got up thinking, geez, what caused that? (laughs) Ah. And when Newton gave it a name, he sort of worked out the mathematics, the laws that determine how it operates, but no one's ever been able to say what it is and what causes two objects to attract, they just do. I mean, Mr. Einstein said, actually, um, it's because uh, a mass distorts uh, the space-time continuum, whatever that is. <laughs> I've never been able to work that out. Um, but it still doesn't answer the question what it is. This conflict between God and Christianity is really based on a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of, of science and a misunderstanding of God. I mean, science is wonderful. It observes the natural world, it, uh, how it works. It tries to measure the, its regularities, but it doesn't answer the question of how or why it behaves the way that it does, and it can't do that. According to the Bible, uh, it's because God has made it so and continues to hold it in existence and energizes it. Paul's letter to, um, to the Colossians says that in Christ all things hold Together, letter to the Hebrews, he says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That means the seat you're sitting in only holds together and only keeps you from falling to the floor because the active uh, power and will of the Lord Jesus Christ um, wills it to be so. So there would be no creation, there would be no world, no science, no me, no you. If the Son of God, the Son of God who became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God hadn't caused it and upholds it at every moment of time. Well, that got me thinking about time. Um, You know, this push to boil everything back to one thing like gravity, very strong and very old, that instinct. Eastern religions all believe that Everything started as one and then some cosmic accident caused everything to separate into hot and cold, wet and dry, light and dark, love and hate, good and evil, you and me. And salvation in the Eastern system means kind of getting back to the original um, unity of things, the oneness. Well, in science, the, the push to discover the kind of the original, um, the original principle or force or whatever it is from which everything else flows, uh, 
Uh, well, that's very strong. It's very attractive to the human mind, this idea of unity and oneness, simplicity. But when you think about it, there can be no gravity without masses to attract each other. And there can be no Big Bang without energy to power the expansion and space for them to expand into and time for it to happen. So the Big Bang, which is beyond the reach of science and its laws, the Big Bang has to provide all of these things. So if you're looking for an original simplicity, you're not going to find it there. There's a lot of things have to be there coming together somehow uh, to lead to the universe that we know. Philosophers, or at least God-believing philosophers, say that God is simple. And what does that mean? doesn't mean he's got no brains. Well, it does in a way. When we say that God is simple, we mean that he's not made up of parts. Even when we say that God is Holy, is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we're not saying that God has three parts. There's one God and uh, he is as he is. He is what he is. And yes, he's Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But we still say that he is simple. He's not. You can't break him up into... Components, but what he complete, what he created, is conflicts, and uh, one of those components is time. So we are at the threshold of the, well, apparently the thirteen point eight billionth and a bit year since the whole thing began, which seems to me to be a good time to be thinking about time as we go into the new year. What is it? Nobody knows what it is. We, we, we measure the distance between events, um, not the space distance, but um, the time difference. Kind of three dimensions of space. You can go forwards and back or backwards. You can go up or down. You can go from one side or to the other. In principle, you can go from any point in the universe to any other point in the universe. But time, it's different. It goes one way, like an arrow. And sometimes we want to go back and redo something better. I remember uh, dinging my dad's car for the first time, I just learned to drive. And Standing, I can still see myself in this this angle parking and all. I can still picture it standing there looking at this beautiful car and it's all squashed at the back and I'm thinking, oh, only I could go back. I'd only have to go back five minutes and I could do that park again and it would be all okay. But, you know, the the twisted metal uh, says something about the arrow of time. And um, that's merely a mystery, isn't it? Time rushes on. Well, it's been a rough year. No sooner are we done with COVID than Russia invades Ukraine. Australians start waking up to the 
China's threatened invasion of Taiwan and wondering what that could possibly mean for us. And then we've got a referendum and uh, suddenly everybody's talking about artificial intelligence and how that's going to change everything. And then out of the blue, Hamas launches a surprise attack on Israel. Time rushes on. Catch your breath if you can. And who knows where it's taking us? No one knows. We ask ourselves, is there any end to the struggle of the Jews? Aristotle says every story has a beginning, a middle and an end. Every good story has a beginning, a middle. That sounds profound, doesn't it? I guess what he's saying is you've got to start somewhere if you want to tell a story. You, you can never begin at the beginning. And you've got to end somewhere. You can never end at the end because history goes on. The Bible story starts with creation. But what does, where is the end? Israel's story starts with Abraham. Abraham comes and pitches his tent near Hebron and God promises him that this land's going to be for you and for your descendants forever. Um, Jews and Christians and Muslims all trace their story back to that beginning. Strangely, they all have very similar ideas about how the story ends. Have very radically different ideas about how we get to the end. But 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah witnessed the invasion of his country and the near annihilation of Jerusalem. And God showed him there was worse to come. Next time Jerusalem wouldn't be spared. And then Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, And then the Romans, worst of all, inventing a method of torture that could keep you in agony for days and uh, degrade you utterly in the eyes of every passerby. But then came the Crusaders, the Arabs, the Turks, the British. They were all rough in their way, although nothing like what uh, preceded them. Uh, Jesus has not been without influence even in real politics. And thank God the Middle East has never, is one place Marxism has not yet got hold of. So in a series of visions towards the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah sees where it's all leading. He sees the end of the story. The nations shall see your righteousness. He's talking about Jerusalem. And all the kings, your glory, and they will be called, and you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, Azuzah, but you'll be called Hetzibah. My delight is in it. And your land, Beulah, married, for the Lord delights in you. Which is something to keep in mind, I think, as we go into the new year, as we see <coughs> this war continue to play out in the Holy Land. We don't know where it's leading. We don't know what comes next. Perhaps Jerusalem is to face devastation again or perhaps God is gathering his people together for some great purpose. The Bible makes it clear that ultimately he will but it's not clear about when or 
And it's very clear that it won't be without turmoil and bloodshed. Well, one thing is clear, and that's that Israel is not yet the nation whose righteousness will astound the other nations. That's one reason why people are demonstrating in the streets. Isaiah goes on, he says, You who put the Lord in remembrance, that's you prayer warriors, you who know that God is the one who ultimately pulls the strings and uh, beseeching him to have mercy, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. That should be our prayer, I think, in the year ahead of us. It was the fervent prayer of faithful Jews from Isaiah's time for the next 700 years. There must have been, it must have seemed like a hopeless dream uh, to most, but there were those who were not deterred by the centuries who continued to trust God's word. Simeon and Anna, two old folk, were in the temple when Mary and Joseph brought their babe in for the purification ceremony. I guess they never thought anything would happen in their generation. But God opened their eyes to see the answer to Isaiah's promise and the answer to all their prayers is there before them. What Luke calls, or what Anna calls, the redemption of Jerusalem. What Simeon calls... Israel's consolation, Israel's comforting. And while Simeon prays, Lord, now you can let your servant depart in peace according to your word because my eyes have seen your salvation which you've prepared in the face of all people. My friend Stephen Williams and I were uh, fishing in a rubber duck, secluded bay just north of Durian, and our motor conked out and wouldn't start again. We had none of the safety equipment we were supposed to be carrying. The offshore wind was carrying us out to sea. There was no other boat. There was no one on the shore, and we were scared. Well, I guess you would say the beginning of our story was when we set off with high hopes on our fishing trip. <laughs> the middle is what I've just described. The climax was when this motorboat suddenly came around the corner of the headland and it was a long way off. We didn't think they would see us, but we tried our best uh, standing up, dancing around in this little rubber duck. I don't know how we didn't fall overboard or capsize it. But suddenly the powerboat changed its course. And it was interesting because Stephen and I at that moment, the moment that boat changed course and we knew it had seen us, we both shouted out exactly the same thing at the same time. We're saved. (laughs) We weren't. We were still in a little boat in difficulties. But that change of direction told us that salvation for us was in the bag. It was as good as done. And that's how it was for Simeon. And for Anna, on that occasion, God had told him, this is the Messiah. He's born. Well, if he's born, then Israel's salvation is in the bag. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. We ask ourselves whether anything's changed. Well, in our story, no. The end of our story was, I guess, we 
were towed back to land. We were safe. But of course it wouldn't be the last time that we would face uh, life-threatening challenges. History goes on. Israel is still surrounded by enemies and uh, is making more enemies. Uh, Salvation seems a long way off. But yes, something has changed. The Saviour has come. His life, his death, his resurrection and ascension have changed everything. His resurrection assures us that God's purposes are powering on like an arrow in flight and that it won't miss its target. Only God knows the time and the hour and what it will be like when that time comes. But it seems the world is growing old and there are signs the story may not last for much longer. Could Israel's war have something to do uh, with what the Bible talks about? At the end, many think that it does. I think we can't know. Uh, We don't know. Um, But you and me, each of us has our own story with its beginning and its middle and its end, the past, the present, the future. How long is the present? (laughs) That's an interesting question. The past is gone. It's over. You can't go back there. The future is ahead. The only way to get to it is to sit where you are in the present and wait for it to come. Between the past and the future lies the present. Have you ever tried to measure how long it is? <laughs> I mean, you wish the holidays would remain present for longer than they do, don't you? Um, is it a day? Is it not 2024? Is that the present? No, tomorrow, today will be gone. And, uh, yeah, Aristotle, not Aristotle, Plato this time, um, says that the present is immeasurable. You cannot measure it, not a split second. The moment it's there, it's past, and the future is coming. He says the present is unmeasurable. It's an image of a timeless eternity. You want to ask what eternity is going to be like? I'll tell you what it's going to be like. It's going to be like the present, whatever that is. We're in what some people have called the existential moment. What do we do with it? The decisions we make in the present will determine our future for good or for ill. And away we stand where Simeon stood. He saw the one who would bring in the new world. We, saw, we see more than he saw. We were able to see how Jesus lived, how he died, what came after. Luke tells us that later on, on the day when his tomb was found empty, two people were walking home from Jerusalem when a stranger fell in beside them and walked with them. They had become excited beyond measure by what they'd seen of Jesus He had built up all their hopes that what Isaiah promised, the new world was going to come. Jesus was going to bring it. Now he was dead. And the stranger didn't seem to know anything about it, so they did their best to explain. What did they say? And we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel, just like Anna and and, uh, Simeon had hoped. So they invite the stranger to spend the night in their home. So imagine their confusion, their bewilderment. 
and their joy when he reveals himself to them as that very one who they think is dead and has shattered all their dreams, everything they'd ever hoped for is dead. And now he's alive and their hopes are alive again. So we live in the age of resurrection. May I suggest that as you set out on 2024, you read the Gospel of Luke from beginning to end and just note that story of Anna and uh, Simeon and note that story of Cleopas and his companion at the end. Take a personal look at the one that Christians make so much of. If you're an adult, don't judge him as a child. Have a grown-up look at him and see what you think. Face yourself with a decision for your life, and that's what it'll be. You can go on, as you always have, as our postmodern culture insists, closing your eyes to the reality of the resurrection of the crucified one, and whiling away your time until your story ends in darkness. That's what our culture is telling us. No wonder so many young people want to end their life early. Or seize the moment, greet the king as your king, swear your allegiance, in which case salvation is as good as yours. doesn't matter when you die. You can say to the Lord, Lord, and take my life whenever you want to take it. Because my eyes have seen your salvation. I know that the future is secure. Now you can let your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Seize the moment. Give your story a good ending. The arrow will hit its target. Jesus will return to abolish death and renew his creation. That will be the end of this evil age and the start of the age of eternity. Jesus called it the kingdom of God, and he says the doors are open. You can come in now. Amen.